another episode of the uh, Profound Podcast, and I have, um, I say this a lot, one of my favorite people, but this person is one of my favorite people. You couldn't find a, a smarter or more sort of friendly and just a really, really good person than uh, the person I'm about to interview. Uh, Mr. Mark, you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> uh, thank you for the uh, uh for the trailer, um, my name is Mark Burgess. I was uh, a physics PhD professor of computer science at the university for many years, and then the founder and author of CF Engine, Promise Theory, a bunch of research about computers and stuff with things. Yeah, Mark has this. Uh, I'll stop being uh, like this, like googly eye fanboy in a minute but he has this ability there's only a couple of people i've met in my career that can do this that that can explain things at different very complex ideas to to sort of meet you where you are you know and uh and and so um you know well first i want to say for people who sort of don't know um the, the people who sort of play with puppet chef and ansible and in the whole infrastructure's code mark invented that space he invented it with CF Engine. He enhanced it with some of his theories about working on sort of multi- later versions and promise theory. Um, so, um, so pretty important person in the uh, in the scheme of what we've done in DevOps and automation. But um, so for me, it was um, you know for those who've been listening to podcasts, there was an original podcast with Ben Rockwood and. And I've gone over this, you know, Ben sort of opened up my eyes about, you know, why Dr. Deming was important. And, and, um, and so I, and, and Ben had a um, presentation in 2011 at, at a Lisa conference, which was DevOps transformation. And, and at the end of it, he sort of handed off a baton and said, Hey, take these ideas. And what he talked about is sort of, he talked about Deming, he talked Taylor Deming, Toyota Ono. And he, he went through sort of like why we, why this stuff should be important to the DevOps conversation. And then Ben sort of handed off this sort of virtual like baton and said, hey, kind of take this. And I took the challenge and I, I was um, scheduled to do um, a presentation at PuppetConf. And, um, you know, and I had this one thing that happened was, was um, in Elliot Gorat's Beyond the Goal, there's a point where he talks about complexity. In fact, an awesome section about what he thinks about complexity and physicists and and in, in just in a short where he says, oh, and by the way, Dr. Deming and myself both have PhDs in physics. That's how we came out of uh, academia. And, and I thought, wow, there's a linchpin between the way Deming and Gorat thought. Because maybe at the time when they were um, so getting their PhD, there was this second scientific revolution happening. So I went to Mark. And, and the reason it's important is I don't think I would have the passion for Deming if if I if Mark hadn't helped me understand some very complex physics, that, those ideas, right? And and if you remember Mark, uh, maybe get your thoughts about we were both speaking at a DevOps day Italy, and uh, we both were spent, got, had the next day we we sort of discovered that we were both sticking around in Rome, and to me that's one of like it's a top five highlight of my career, me and you just walking around Italy, no map. I remember yeah. is finding the worst pizza place in. London. Oh yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, that, was, that, that, <laughs> that that goes with the. But like we're we're like I'm asking you questions about like physics and yours. We're talking about the industry and hey, look, there's the Colosseum, you know. And then we walk a little <laughs> further in the Spanish stairs. So you remember that? Okay. We that was 
a lot of fun, huh? That's a nice thing. Yeah. So, um, so part of that then is that um, I needed to understand this linchpin. So I, I started this dev, Deming to DevOps, which really was a head fake because it was really Darwin. It was non-determinism. It was clear that GoRat and um, and Deming and, and, and a number of others really were thinking in this counterintuitive nature. And um, and what I started to discover was non-determinism, you know, from a non-scientist, I would say started maybe with Darwin. Ludwig Boltzmann wanted to do something that Darwin was doing with biology in gases and, and you know, and, 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 and started, uh, you know, uh, statistical mechanics. But then there was an interesting person between him and Einstein, which was Max Planck. And, and I, I, you know, I read your book, In Search of Certainty, you, you, you know, you sort of talk about the Planck, Planck constant. And I remember really having a hard time just understanding that. And I, I thought one of the things you kind of helped me, which was, and I think this is sort of a quarter of a counterintuitive or I'm rambling now, but you, the way I remembered it is you said to me that, you know, let me put it this way, John, Planck found a way to measure the, the unmeasurable. I, you, can you take a launch off from there? Do you remember? Um, I have actually zero memory of that, ah. <laughs> but maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to it uh, um, along the way. I, I want to pick up on some of the things that you said from Darwin to uh, to now through complexity, because there is an interesting sort of chain of events around that time. Of course, Darwin um, came up with this extraordinary, new, beautiful idea of it that just from chance alone, um, you could in fact see the evolution of or a pathway for change through uh, a sequence of revisions, if you like, of, um, of some kind of ecosystem, um, adapting to pressures and, and um, things going on in the environment around it. And the key ideas there were that you had this random sort of probabilistic process of mutation, this non-deterministic, as you say, uh, unknown process or, or set of processes sort of impinging upon um, an active system. And then there's a counter process, which is uh, often forgotten about it in the modern world, but which was he clearly identified as being the process of selection. And that, that meeting of these pro, the, pro, the push of a, a series of changes sort of providing the content, and then the selection, which is kind of a quality assurance process, if you like, which assesses somehow the suitability of, that, uh, of those potential changes to the challenges of the environment. That is kind of a key idea, which went through all kinds of revisions um, in, in different areas, but it's, of course it's been the mainstay of biology, but uh, it's, it's now coming back in information science in, in, uh, in a number of different ways. But, but you also mentioned you know, the time at which Deming and uh, Goldratt and these guys were studying physics. It was really the birth of the quantum 
era. And of course, it had come out of the thermodynamic revelations of Boltzmann, um, emphasizing the role of probability, but also inventing the idea of atoms, right? Nobody believed in atoms for a long time. Uh, Boltzmann kind of predicted that, and no one believed him. Mm. And it took, you know, Einstein to kind of confirm that with, uh, with the quantum theory. But uh, around that time, the whole birth of quantum theory was still very much uh, rooted in this idea that everything gets pushed from the past into the future. It's that, that flow of mutations or, or random uh, fluctuations from some pre-existing state into some future state, what we call causation, causality. Mm. And the whole story of physics developed around this notion of causality and this notion of selection was almost invisible uh, for a very long time until quite recently. But in fact, it's baked into the very essence of quantum mechanics because there are these, uh, in quantum mechanics, you, you have these two, um, you have the wave function, which is kind of a map of, of what can go on in a system. And you have the, the conjugate of the wave function, which is kind of the emission and absorption of, um, of stuff that's happening. So one part represents the, the push and the other represents the acceptance of those things which I kind of ended up baking into promise theory, you know, in more recent times. But if you trace the history of that idea that you require both the push and the pull, you know, the offer and the acceptance, that is a kind of an interesting thing, which was sort of absent from physics for a long time because of the Newtonian traditions. But Deming picked up on that in an interesting way in his 14 points of management um, in the way that he he uh, he said things like, you know, yes, okay, you can use probabilis- probabilities to predict things that are known. You can observe patterns, but don't put too much trust in patterns because actually one of the important things is who is the receiver of this information, of these patterns, of these uh, methods, and how will they select from those all possible alternatives to make choices. Um, and he said something quite interesting to me, which was that when you have a supplier in a supply chain, focus on one supplier. Don't have a whole bunch of different suppliers. Have one supplier and build a relationship with them, a quality uh, ah. building relationship between them, which is exactly that kind of Darwinian selection because it's not just okay there's a bunch of people that can give me an apple it's is that apple fit for my purpose and do and can i always secure the ability to get that really good apple that i want from that supplier and maybe i maximize my chances of doing that not by um failover redundancy across 20 different suppliers hoping i'm going to get something but by building a relationship with that one supplier to help them, you know, invest in their ability to deliver to me and this mutual feedback cycle of to build upon, to ensure that the ability, the stability of that, um, of that pipeline. And that's kind of interesting uh, because of course, in probability theory, the theory of reliability, as it was first invented as a, 
uh, as an exercise in probabilities. There is this uh, folk theorem. It's called, I think it's called the folk theorem, which says basically that if you can build reliability or redundancy into the, at the component level at the smallest scale of any kind of device or process, so that that process never fails, that will always be at least as good as or better than a process in which you try to have that failover redundancy where, okay, that thing fails, but then you can find another thing that will do something similar and use that instead. So the larger the scale over which you fail over, the less reliable or the less continuous or, or continuously assured your system will be. And that folk theorem sort of summarizes a, a sort of a mathemati mathematization of, of Deming's insight, which is that if you invest in that one thing, if you try to prevent your core process, your focused core process from failing, that's probably the best you can do. You kind of don't want your engines to fail if you're flying in a plane, right? You don't want to change the engines in mid-flight. Better to invest in having the engine not fail in the first very, place. Very specific about the engine itself. Yeah, I, you know, this is brilliant because, um, you know, I love the idea of the sort of probability. And, you know, I've just been a student of this stuff. I bet they wrote an article just about sort of the history of probability, which probably is terrible in the grand scheme of things. But, but it, it related to what Bell Labs did. You know, because this is a big part of Deming's career came from, you know, um, uh, Dr. Walter Schuert, right? And 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 I always thought Schuert just came up with statistical controls because a brilliant person. But what I found through a couple of research papers was that that um, you know Bell Labs was probably one of the, you know, apparently you know when you get into the the you know end of the 19th century, uh, early uh, 20th century, you find that insurance companies were really the only ones really using probability theory. And then all this, and then but Bell Labs, the, the point they they basically figured out like we could use this for um, telephone, you know, quality transmissions, coil. Vina, Shannon. Yeah, yeah, wrong. Yeah, then it just goes crazy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and but like so, Stewart like was like involved in this coming into this whole door of like really deep thinkers about probability. And then he comes up with this. Um, but the thing I, I think was interesting is, so I, I've been sort of geeking out about, in fact, our first conversation actually was about what was, you know, why do people perceive CF engine differently than chef and puppet? And I spent a year trying to understand promise theory and sort of came back with an answer to you. And I said, I think our answer is that those are deterministic systems like that you must look like this every 30 minutes, you know, and, and you're and, and it, there'll become a point in time where those systems will not work with the complexity. And your system was a sort of a non-deterministic in that it was really based on what you're saying. And I guess I didn't get that is it was about certainly about probabilities, right? You know, the, each actor was responsible for itself, you know, and it really became sort of mathematical, but the thing I guess I didn't get that ties back to Darwin, which I'm, I now I'm seeing as ties back to Deming, which is the sort of the selection process, the pushback, exactly. which is the actor and the promiser and the promisee. I think that was the key, the key thing. Because in you know, CF Engine was also trying to be somewhat deterministic, right? But but it can only ever be approximately deterministic, and it was kind of happy to live with that uh, constraint. 
but very much this idea of selecting the the desired outcome from the the state that you are actually in so first of all you you observe the actual state and then figure out how to get to the desired state and try to do it uh, you know according to those selection pressures if you will from the environment and it's interesting to see how the story of of genetics has also kind of followed this path, you know, from starting from Darwin, of course, they didn't know about genes back then. He only knew about this, this concept of evolution. But then we discovered the genetics of it, the machinery of the system. Mm-hmm. And of course, being, being uh, who we are, the first idea was, oh, this must be a deterministic state machine. The genes determine the the uh, yeah. the phenotype the Isn't it kind of funny how humans think things can be so simple <laughs> right and then of course they realized it was probabilistic so okay that's another level of of associate associated with it and um you know richard dawkins wrote his famous book the selfish gene uh indicating how this idea that just by random selection um the environment could somehow select these Things and the gene is simply trying to propagate itself uh, selfishly, if you will, trying to continue different processes. Or these processes are trying very hard to survive, trying in the sense of uh, adapting um, okay. to survive. In in the sense that if they don't survive, then they don't continue. So it's only the ones you, that continue that you see. But but then of course this twist of, of the story comes out many years later with epigenetics. You know, out of left field, everybody had figured that they they'd figured out genetics, but then they realized that, oh wait, the genes are not the whole stories because there are receptors for these genes which select mm. uh, which ones are active at any moment, and those things are are adaptive in real time and not just passed on through inheritance. So things can be switched on or off uh, from this quite complex. Uh, they call it a computer program for DNA, but of course it's really just, um, it's a bunch of switches uh, with pre-programmed hard-coded behaviors. But the the whole activity of a cell is this extraordinary uh, equilibrium between what is being offered and what is being selected by things that come from both father and mother uh, origin and phenotype environment and and message being handed down through antiquity just really an extraordinary mind-boggling process to understand but now uh, we're recreating that entire process in it by having uh, of course the desire to to push out certain changes but then uh, whether or not we are willing to accept these changes uh, and things being offered to us and of course, over the weekend and this whole of the past couple of weeks, there's been this internet outage, which is sort of surrounding surrounding Facebook's um, BGP blunder, which then, of course, propagates through the internet. And it's because people, yeah. Yeah. some people are willing to accept those changes, and other people are selecting That's them brilliant. away. Yeah. That certain parts of the internet are working, and certain right. parts of the internet got switched off. Um, it affected me. Um, Google Home. <laughs> uh, yeah. Couldn't switch the, um, on my lights. 
you know, I, I'd heard just as a sort of side, I was uh, talking to somebody, one of those sort of Titan, uh, you know, Titan sort of web scale companies that we all know, you know, they, they were like, they had to do sort of a whole day summit to say, let's figure out what happened here, because we don't want this happening to us. And it, I, the theory that the, the this person who worked for this sort of cloud Titan company was that um, they, there was a paper that Fra- uh, Facebook did a while back about how they rebuilt this like incredible automation system for BGP changes. So it was like this, um, you know, super like try to be a DevOps way for config changes for BGP. And so that like they could actually do you know, to a system that had supposedly guardrails and all this, they could do this, the similar, like we do with software, like a hundred, a thousand deploys a day, they could do that with BGP changes. And then, but the patterns of routes because of COVID just started creating more and more edge cases, you know, like as you design. And so I thought that was sort of interesting. Um, Yeah, go ahead. I mean, it's curious, isn't it? How, you just the network engineers, the engineers who designed the internet, in their wisdom, created this non-deterministic, autonomously self-healing set of layers on which the internet is built. And what do we do down the line? We try to replace it all with a deterministic, push-based <laughs> deployment yeah. process. Yeah. Manage this. Thankfully, uh, the self-healing nature of that system on, on the way healed the, the internet within a reasonably short amount of time right, that's right. and was able to uh, recover from that deterministic yeah. blunder. Yeah, my, my good buddy uh, says that, you know, we, you know the internet's going figure, to figure out, or BGP or just the routing program is going to figure out a way to get your cat pitches no matter what happens. So, uh, you know, that's <laughs> the most important thing about the internet. You know, the, I, I love this idea of the push and pull, right? Like, um you know, uh, you know, I, I think the example you just used of Deming, um, you know, one of his sort of supply chain ideals was a single vendor, right? Which, you know, sort of Toyota adopted, right? Like this idea and, and that, that you're right, because a, a lot of what Toyota had done was based on, on sort of a lot of Deming's theories about sort of probability and like there's no, you know, in just the human condition of how people work together, there's sort of no, you know, simple like you put it in this structure, it's going to work that way. Right. And, and a lot of the success, I think of how Toyota operator proxy systems. And then you're right. They had these, that sort of, um, you know, ability to go to the one supplier. You know, I think the best analogy is the airplane engines, but, but it, when I think about Deming, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize about Deming is, you know, especially in all oh, the hot chat kids today, and we talk about complexity and complexity theory, Deming was addressing those ideas 50, 60 years ago. And so uh, I, I, I guess I would ask you is then, can we, you know, to, could, is it reasonable to say that you could sort of simplify complexity, which is a stupid way to say something, but in that sort of push-pull model? I mean, you, you do, of course, the way you simplify complexity is to atomize something. You mm-hmm. smash something. We're good at this in physics, right? We smash things into little pieces and then try to <laughs> try to understand the world in terms of those small pieces. But in in sort of the analogy in terms of process, complex processes, is autonomy is the kind of atomic state of a of a process. Um, what I think is interesting for me is this. You know, the whole Newtonian tradition, the whole tradition of physics around this kind of push-based 
ballistic billiard ball like understanding of the world is that um you know like this idea of the push and pull like select you know there's the probability of like the flow forward and we sort of look at the world as like we're taking best guesses at what's going to happen using you know sort of good math but right. then there's this counterpart which is this is narrowing in my in a way of a selection process and I was wondering, you know, Deming was a big part, you know, that fits Deming's mindset really well, or what I understand. But, and then, so I guess I was asking is, um, could you sort of express the ideas of complexity using that sort of push-pull model? You do, right? I mean, so I guess the big insight in, in complexity theory is that the world is built from processes and networks of processes. So they have this Newtonian idea, that's what I was trying to think of a moment ago, that uh, there's kind of a grand plan and everything follows orbits mm. in, and, and behaves deterministically according to simple rules is, is fine on one level if you have sufficiently, if you have sufficient constraints to make it simple enough, mm. right? It, basically linear. So right. something never gets too far away from linear. But in complex systems, networks also have these feedback loops, which make them highly nonlinear. And so, so these things can be either positive or negative. They can have a regulatory influence or they can have an amplifying influence, which can easily cause something to spiral out of control. Uh, and this kind of understanding of network science, graphs, um, influences on um, multiple levels is really important there. You know, when I started trying to understand computer systems using my physics background, I, I tried the usual tools, which were, you know, as a quantum physicist, I would think in quantum terms, field theory, statistical mechanics, probabilities, all of these, these kinds of things. After 10 years, I, I stopped and I realized there's something missing from this story, and that is the semantics. How do these choices, these selections get made? on what criteria are the decisions ongoing in systems, right? It's not just billiard balls hitting each other by random chance. There are selections. And these selections in biology and epigenetics in all of these different cases uh, are kind of lock and key fits. Now everyone's uh, very aware of this because of the COVID crisis. Of course, you have viruses that try to dock to cells and there's a kind of lock and key mechanism. If you can block that mechanism, great, no virus can, can attack you. That's what antibodies do. Um, but, but basically throughout all of the systems of the world, you have these kind of lock and key mechanisms which represent semantic choices. And this is how, you know, these things are not based on logic, you know, if then else, they're based on pattern matching. Mm. If you have compatibility between two processes, that have a representation that fit together, then something can be propagated, continued, sustained. If on the other hand, these things don't fit together, they just bounce off each other and they stop, they die out, they're not selected. Um, those are the evolutionary dead ends in a, in a system. And of course, this applies to anything, not just biology, it applies to all kinds of information processes where things are going on. And so it's this semantic lock and key bit that we mm. have forgotten, we forgot about in understanding uh, systems. And that's how you constrain complexity by, by selection. 
So if you can tune your receptors to the things that you need and the things that you want, you will immediately eliminate a lot of that complexity and, and sort of force it out of your picture. This is great because I now, you know, this, this is brilliant, right? Because, I, you know, if I think about Deming's body of work, right, you know, one of the things that it is clear, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, they, I don't know if people still use left brain or right, right brain, but his father was very sort of analytical, very engineering-like. He was a lawyer. His mother was an artist, you know, in music. And, and so I always thought that had part of, and there are sort of some early disciples of Deming who expressed this the way, you know, that he had this ability to sort of weave between the sort of um, the, the sort of right brain versus left brain capabilities. But in another sense, he was just a humanist. And then you question like, why was he humanist? Like he, like it was clear, like the 14 points or the things that he wrote about is that, you know, they say that he'd walk into a large corporation and he would chew out senior management but he would never sort of yell at a, sort of a worker like, you know, and, and I, I wondering if like part of his, uh, um, you know, semantic selection, if you will, was that like these, these complex systems, these supply chains, these, I want to build cars. I want to do this. The push uh, would not work if you didn't, in your words, lock and key the human. Exactly. I mean, the you know the the idea of a supply chain, of course, is exactly this kind of lock and key fit, a, a, a series of uh, transitions, as in economics, as in biology, as in all these different these different cases. But um, it's really a story. It's a kind of story that emerges from the collaboration between independent processes at different locations, right? Does this process connect with that process? Will it continue the story onwards? And perhaps we more normally think of stories as things that are designed, written by an author, you know, deterministically mm -hmm. uh, in the Newtonian fashion, there's some godlike author that writes the, the outcome and so shall it be. But that isn't the way stories emerge in um in complex systems. The, the stories emerge by essentially cooperation, which is based on dynamical enablement. So there has to be something alive enough to connect, mm -hmm. right? So I think people, the, the places have to be awake, <laughs> not sleeping on the job. But then they also have to couple on a semantic level. You have an offer of uh, an apple. Do I need an apple? Uh, and if, if those things come together, then the story continues and hopefully towards some kind of an outcome. And the challenge, of course, in, in engineering these processes uh, is can I engineer the, the necessary conditions to achieve my desired state outcome? Right in biology, there is no desired state. It's just whatever survives, survives, okay. Okay. and we get what we get. And to some extent, that applies on any sufficiently large system because we can't, of course, control all the parts. But on a small enough scale, if we can contain, uh, put a, some sort of boundary around the system, isolate ourselves sufficiently well, we can decide on the kind of outcome that we want to have and engineer the various flows in such a way that they will converge on that outcome, not necessarily every time, but we can keep doing it and keep trying to improve it 
and make sure that the locks and the keys are sufficiently specific to only let through the bits that will make that outcome happen. And I guess that's the probability part, right? Like, like we're going to sort of hopefully, you know, work towards more lock and key conditions based on sort of prior knowledge or the prior flow, and we're sort of constantly statistically working our way it's, that it's interesting now because you know we're seeing this shift in uh, in AI. Yeah, right? so yeah. this renewal of AI thinking uh, went through all, all these different uh, stages, but but one of them was um, started with Bayesian learning, these statistical networks learning, which were basically push based systems. Right, you train in one direction, you push stuff through a network, you try to imprint. Uh, the the patterns of flow a bit like a river carving its way through uh, uh, the landscape, and then basically things will follow that pattern of valleys and so on uh, in the future. But then people realized that actually this, this notion of back propagation in neural networks and machine learning these in these learning networks, um, the idea that the selection process is also a key part of that learning. And that's what the backpropagation is, right? You train from both directions at the same time. Your boundary conditions are both that which is being offered to you, all of the data, all of the faces you're trying to facially recognize, but also the, the kinds of things that you want to achieve. You know, is this a beautiful face or an ugly face? Is it a, is it a, a criminal face or an innocent face? Right. Um, is it a photo fit of the person that the the witness believed they saw? Can we match these selection criteria to the to yeah, this yeah. flow of things being offered? And it's in that, and that's that's what has revolutionized machine learning through these uh, network structures, which are sufficiently complex to embody, you know, uh, degrees of freedom that can capture those those many variables, but also are sufficiently constrained by, by these process pipelines that they will give hopefully a, the same answer again and again, given the same input conditions. But you're right. So I, I've actually been, um, I have gotten recently, you know, AI has always been to me something interesting. Okay. That's interesting. That's cool. You know, I, I tried to do, I took a Coursera on TensorFlow and I'm like, okay, great. But like, I, what am I going to do? Right. I don't have any scale problems. And, uh, but then um, recently I've um, stumbled into this GPT three stuff. I don't know if you've, it's based on this, um, what, you know, with the kind of deep learning language models. Right. And, and again, here, I love like this idea of the sort of you know, the, the, the semantic interlock or the push pull, which is you're exactly right. Like these, some of these models have scrolled like 10% of the internet, you know, f from the beginning. And um, that would sort of by itself be sort of interesting, but it really is the interlock in that what we're seeing now is, you know, you know, good or like Copilot is a good example. Copilot from GitHub, that's based on this GPT-3, right? Which is, you know, and, and, you know, people get mad or, you know, like there's, you know, there's good and bad in all this stuff. Like you can write all the arguments of why, like, artificial intelligence for doing this is terrible. Then you could write the arguments for why artificial intelligence for this is like really awesome. But like, but Copilot is one of these examples of the, it learned as much as it could about like everything in GitHub 
to a neural, you know, deep learning neural network. And then now you write in the beginning of some code and you hit like a complete command and it generates what it thinks from probability. Like in other words, it's just doing math, right? It's, it's adding up all the things that would come next and say, well, this thing, the way somebody described to me is, you know, if you had one of these systems and you say, you know, I think therefore I, basically it's going to run the calculation and say the highest probability is I am. Right. And, uh, you know, so like the, I think the, these examples of these, these newer, you know, and there's a war going on between Google and Microsoft. And then, you know, there's a Beijing Academy of Artificial, like they're, they're like, they're all trying to create the bigger version of this thing that, that can write a book for you if you want. But, but I hadn't thought about it as the sort of the semantic interlock that you need. It's the, the thing that are making these really interesting is the human basically using these things at a level that could like write me a paragraph about Mark Burgess. <laughs> You know, and if there's enough data in uh, in the model, it might not want to read. <laughs> but I think you know what's interested me. I, I mean, I've been working on these semantic networks for about 15 years since I had this epiphany that semantics were an important part of, of the story, and uh, I never got interested in the machine learning parts, the neural networks, which are, you know, in neural networks you you take a kind of a an, a somewhat homogeneous and uh, uniform network, and you try to program it by carving pathways through it. Um, but the, the alternative to that is, is to try to use strongly encoded semantics, more like the logical model or the typological model that we use in programming uh, or the lock and key fit that we were just discussing a moment ago. Um, by using that in a, in a graph structure, Today, we have these graph databases, which I've started to use myself uh, recently. Um, by using those, we can be very precise about the constraints around processes and understand them far more cleanly and more, I don't want to say deterministically, but but less fuzzily than we, we would do if we just embedded the whole thing in this sort of generic network, which is what neural networks try to do and often they are they are kind of uh, wavering on the boundary between what is a network and what is a euclidean space uh, to kind of the space of imagination that they're trying to construct something some fuzzy representation in um, and that's very expensive if you try to do that as they do in in machine learning these days but but there's still a huge amount of potential in these semantic networks, which are basically the way biology works, to very precisely identify things. I mean, just think of the, the precision with which our immune systems can identify a pathogen. It's, even, it's been shown that you know, our immune systems can create antibodies for viruses that have never existed in the history of the world. And of course they have to, because these things are being created all the time from random right. processes. So it's that ability to adapt uh, and manipulate information in complex semantic pathways uh, by networks that are highly constrained. Um, there are not an infinite number of pathways. There are many, many pathways, but the combinatorics are not infinite. And that's mm. really important. Uh, so and I think it's part of the mistake that 
AI and machine learning are making at the moment. They they're just throwing brute force at the problem yeah, yeah. because they can, and they're not they're not utilizing the constraints that are available in the best possible way. In my opinion, at least, I think that might become you know it's sort of a pure layman, but I, I do have two touch points on my experience with sort of the deep learning and neural network stuff, right? Which is I've been playing around with these new language model sort of things. And it's interesting that, you know, the, particularly the GPT-3, right? It apparently was, it, 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 it crawled 10% of the internet. That's its model. It, it looked at all Wikipedia, all you know, certain things. You can list all the sources that it, it, it gathered from. And so if you start asking it, like, tell me a story about, um, Abraham Lincoln, or like, it'll be pretty precise, you know, it'll sort of generate a couple of paragraphs of reasonable stuff. But then if you ask it somebody like Walter Sheward, or, or somebody who's like, probably not a low percentile part of that 10% conversation, what it does, because it's very nature, it's all like it does, I, I was watching your sort of like your third part video on the space time, right? Like, like, um, they, they don't have this. The, these engines don't have opinions. They're like, you know, they, they're just algorithms. And so it will just start saying, OK, this person wants me to tell a story about somebody I don't really know a whole lot. about." So Walter Schuett was born in uh, Topeka, Ohio. His wife's named Jane. He liked flying kites. I mean, that, that's basically what these systems do. And so when you work with these systems, you have to realize. The semantic connection between you know, between what you're asking it and what, you know, that sort of that algorithm engine who could, who could be beautiful. Like, you know, be honest with you, if I'm a student today, you know, I, you know, I don't want my kids to cheat, but like if I was in college right now and I had an essay or high school and I had to do an essay on Abraham Lincoln, I'd be like in these things all day long. Right. Um, <laughs> because they, they can't. And, and then, so that's one part. So I do want your comment on, but the second part is, and I just wrote a blog article about it. I've thought about this a lot over the years about the blind spots between AI and humans and in that AlphaGo documentary, right? The, the, where, um, where the Google team tries to play the, 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 the great, like the greatest, you know, Go player in the world. And there's an interesting, like, um, you know, game one, um, I think game, two, game, uh, two or game three there was a three it was a best of five the you know um the uh google won four out of the five right but um so there's like it was game two or something like game one was like okay you know it was an anomaly the machine beat this guy this will never happen again next next game in in game two there's like a move 32 or something like that and uh or, or 37 i don't remember where everybody in the go community looked at it and said oh alpha go totally blew it and what AlphaGo saw that this Leon Lee Sadal, whatever his name was, didn't see was Lee Sadal, as good as he was, he saw the blind spot was the real estate. The, 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 um, and then, but AlphaGo said, you know what? That move, I'll win by half a point. And then just the, the and I definitely want to get your comment. And then, like, okay, wow, the, the game of Go learned a whole new lesson because, like, the, we all have had this blind spot of the sort of the black and white. The algorithms didn't see color, but then in like the, the, what was it? The fourth game, they call it the God move. And it was a move that had the model had never seen or never been trained. Very similar to the asking the question about Walter Schuett versus, and um, 
So Lucero makes what they call this God move. And he probably was the only human on the planet that could have made this move. But it was a human like move, right? And AlphaGo fell apart. It just like started making wacky decisions after that. So I think there's an interesting combination to your point of semantics of that these these systems can be very useful for us, but we have to find the interlocks. Isn't it interesting how even having understood the the pluses and the minuses, the interlocks, uh, the push and the pull of these of these systems, we then totally neglect our own uh, selection process yeah, in observing yeah. these things and interpreting them. We think the machine is behaving intelligently because it did something that we interpret as being intelligent. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. What does that even mean? Right. But it's the we who make that selection, that judgment, that determination based on our own worldview, right? We create that God in our own image, selecting it and interpreting that as intelligence. Oh, wasn't uh, AlphaGo so smart? Maybe the only person who could realize it was smart was that really smart guy receiving it because he knew himself, he was an expert in that area and understood the subtlety of that random move. And yes, it was totally random. Um, you know, if you if you pour water over a, a surface, it will find every possibility, mm-hmm. every little crack to get into, which normally you wouldn't see or, or find without pouring, having poured, poured water over it. But it takes somebody then to be able to feel the wetness of that thing to be able to realize, oh, yeah, it was that crack that made the difference. Um, and that we we surprisingly interpret as, you know, we do it all the time. We attach agency to things, machines. The machine wants to do this, doesn't want to do this. The machine was really smart there. Of course, it wasn't. But, but we, it feels smart because had we done it ourselves, we would have, uh, perhaps thought, well, I can rely on my own patterns and yeah. experiences to do that. And so when I see something behaving in a similar way, I connect to that with my own semantics and interpret that as being smart or intelligent. And of course, it's it, it's it could be a totally random thing, but it's because we have this notion of semantics, yeah. this lock and key that's right, that's right. information. Yeah, I, to me, that's been the, like the best part of this is that really I, I've got a sort of better view of what I've been talking about. And, I, you know, I think maybe that's the danger of AI. You know, I knew we're running. Well, I could do this for like four hours with you, Mark, but but I don't think the the, the podcast would work out really well. But it maybe is that the danger of AI? Because one of the things I'm following these GPT-2 groups and open AI groups and and there's and a lot of people are using it to do sort of copy editing and like they're like it's just a whole in cottage industry is blown up. You know, people are able to write stuff faster and quicker. And and in that sort of realm or that sort of ecosystem, they just see this thing as this magical sort of it's this beautiful thing. And every once in a while, they're like, you know, I don't know why it can't do this. And, you know, I'm trying to say, because, you know, if it doesn't know about it, it won't do that. You know, like back to the sort of alpha go or and uh, and I think maybe the, the danger and I guess I'm asking question making comment is that that if humans, you know, sort of look at these AIs as the God and sort of give up and say, oh, I'm just going to have this thing write all my things. And and I see this in these forum groups. People think these things and in a sense they are magic but they're not really magic because you need that interlock, as you say. 
you know, so. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think um, where do people, you know, your videos are insanely awesome, like incredibly well produced, Um, you know, just, you know, I mean, I'm sort of my, I got to have a whole podcast just asking you, how do you, how did you get through all that sort of interview and the imagery and and, uh, (laughs) have to do something during COVID, right? (laughs) That's right. But uh, where, where, you know, you've got the In Search of Certainty, which I I recommend to everybody, um, your Semantic Space Time book. And then your blog, right? Um, so, what, what's the best way to get to find out more about you, in general? Oh, um, I'm always trying to find ways to communicate these ideas. I've been uh, recently working on some blog posts. Um, this whole idea of semantic space time is interesting to me. It is the idea that it's not just um, things. You know, we're taught to to view the world in terms of things is very Newtonian idea. The, it's an empty world full of things with different properties. Um, it's really about the processes, think changing things uh, or things that, that change and how change interacts with change. And that's the concept of space-time, space and time together. Space is memory, time is change. Um, and so I've been, a lot of people say this is too abstract, you know, very interesting, too abstract. So I've been writing a series of blog posts uh, over the last few weeks, 11 parts on Medium. You can find them, data analytics and smart space-time or semantic space-time. And I, I use uh, Go, not not AlphaGo, but uh, Golang, the uh, programming language, and uh, ArangoDB, the graph database, and these quite easy tools to use to create models of this, this, and how you would program this and apply it to different scenarios. And that's been a really interesting experience for me to do even something as simple as uh, applying it to trace route on the network, you know, how, how that creates uh, scenarios, which are almost indistinguishable from quantum mechanics. These, these questions have been, um, handled badly, I believe, by yeah. the scientific community for a long time, because people like to silo things, and, and then people attach sort of religious significance to things like quantum mechanics, and, and it, it, it sort of gets in the way of us understanding the deeper issues. But I believe that there are issues that can be understood by everyone that are core here, and I made these this series of three documentaries, Bigger, Faster, Strong, Smarter, to try to communicate some of those ideas in, to every man. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm always trying, and I hope people find my stuff and and enjoy some of it and, and perhaps learn a bit along the way. Yeah, no, you do a good job. Like I said in the beginning, you're you're really well. Jay Bloom, I work with, very similar in this, that, that he can and you can translate very sort of complex ideas to meet the person you're trying to give it to at their level with non con you know, no, no sort of, you know, no kind of say, you know, like literally, you know, like, Hey, you dummy, like not you would ever say that. Like, okay. I understand why he's asking it this way. Let me try to choose. And so I think your videos, everything are in that way. And, you know, again, I, um, I'm a huge fan. I, I think it seems to me as I sort of watch your career, I think you're getting closer and closer to the time where like, Oh, we should have listened to Mark 30 years ago, <laughs> you know? So, uh, I wrote a, another one of the things that during the COVID time, I managed to finally catch up on some uh, work based on this idea of semantic space-time, which 
I called motion of the third kind or virtual motion, which is really just understanding what it means for something to move around Mm. in the virtual realm. You know, what does a virtual machine look like when it moves? Mm. Does it look anything like Newtonian bodies when they're, you know, ballistically striking each other in, in space? And it's a very interesting question because everyone in physics kind of assumes that the fundamentals of physics are the bottommost level of reality. But if you if you view what happens in quantum mechanics as virtual processes, you know, I don't want to say a simulation, but something that happens on top of something else that is the infrastructure for that process, mm-hmm. very much like the cloud in computing, then things make a lot more sense. And they don't look so wacky and weird as, as everyone wants to pretend they are. Um, it's just that We've perhaps been looking at it in the wrong way for yeah. a long time. I mean, and, yeah. yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, that at the crux of like most of our problems in IT, and we've talked, me and you have talked about this a lot of times over the years, is that we can't get, you know, even if we're not physicists, we have that sort of um, deeply rooted Newtonian way of thinking about everything. And so when we look at, you know, we try to compartmentalize this incredibly complex system into like, I know what it looks like. In fact, let me draw on the whiteboard to tell you what it looks like. Like, how silly is that? Or like, here's the change record of what's going to happen when I do this, right? Like, that's where you get your, uh, your, your, your BGP massive internet outages or your night capitals, right? And, and, uh, and I think that, you know, I always try to say to people like, you know, like if make me the CEO of an organization I would first like like drill a mindset of systems thinking to everybody in the organization. Number one, just so that we can always understand the sort of greater, you know, sort of critical an- analysis of whatever we see. It's sort of it's bigger, and we can that that abstraction layer. And then that like to your point is you, you know if you look at cloud and you see it in 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 a sort of uh, you know that that sort of a quantum way or a systems, you know, like you you can see it that like of course we couldn't understand why that wouldn't, you know, that how we could never prepared for that, like you know like the the you know again it's sort of like the the AlphaGo move thirty eight or whatever thirty seven or what it was like there, no human could have calculated that like at the end of the game AlphaGo was going to win by a half a point. I mean, it's just they're, they're, you know, it's just not possible for a human to do that computation. So yeah, I, I think that that's great. I'll put all the links in, and um, probably should do this again because um, again, we could easily go on for another hour. Last um, time we started a whole series. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Right. We still have that stuff out there, but uh, let's probably do something. Anyway, my friend, um, I guess your weekend has begun. Mine's still got a half half a day before it starts. Um, I follow you on Facebook. It looks like you're having a good time, you know, in your life. And I'm, I'm happy for that too. So I, I, I care a lot about you, my friend. So, um, all right. Till we meet again. <laughs>